Ross. My name is Mackenzie, for those of you who don't know me, and I have the wonderful honor and privilege of teaching this morning while our lead pastor, Jason, is out of town. And we're right in the middle of our summer series stories, but we're going to kind of be switching it up today. It's going to look a little different than it has the past couple of weeks. We're going to be looking at a specific story in 1 Samuel 16, and the title of this message is, If the Shoe Fits if the shoe fits. And hopefully that will make sense here in a minute. But before we get into it, I want to pray for us one more time. Dear Heavenly Father, we invite you into this space. We ask you to come meet us here. I pray that you divide up this word 200 different ways for every person in the room, um, that you customize it to each individual story that's in this room. And I just pray that you speak to our hearts And that if there's anything that I say that is not of you, that it would just fall to the ground and that no one would hear it. And every word that is from you, that it would just stick in our hearts, that we couldn't forget it. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to go ahead and jump right in with 1 Samuel 16, uh, verses 1 through 13, and they should be on the screen. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace I have come, to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his height or his appearance, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons that you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending to the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. So you may notice that chapter 17, which is directly following this, is the story of David and Goliath. Now, if you've gone to church for any given amount of time, you've probably heard one or two, or if not more than you can count, sermons on David and Goliath. And while I absolutely love that passage, and I think it has so much to offer us, I think that the part of the story that comes before that has just as much to offer, if not more, and that we need to understand where David started out in order to understand the magnitude of where he ended up. So we're going to spend our time unpacking this passage of scripture. So starting back in verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. 
So here we see Samuel mourning the loss of something that he cared about, something that he thought was good. And God doesn't shame him for mourning. Mourning is natural and even necessary. But how long you stay there is up to you. He may have lost something good, but it was only because God was going to replace it with something better. God is doing a new thing. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. So God is making a promise here. But notice that God is sending Samuel to the promise. He's not sending the promise to Samuel. Just like he sent the Israelites to the promised land, he did not send the, Israel, the promised land to the Israelites. God is the giver of great gifts. He sent the ultimate gift, Jesus, to us. Love came down. He meets us where we are. But in order for us to step into the fullness of that gift, it's going to require some faithfulness from us. It requires our faithfulness to follow through with God's instructions. Verse 2, but Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. So we're made a promise and then given instructions to follow up with. It's natural to have some questions. But pay attention to who the questions are directed towards. Having questions isn't the problem. God is not intimidated by your questions. We run into problems, though, when we have questions, and instead of taking them to the one who is most equipped to answer them, we take them to other people first. Now, seeking wise counsel is biblical. It's a wise thing to do, but I think we're missing out when we don't take our questions to God first and foremost. When we ask God last, our judgment becomes clouded by man's opinion. He deserves to be the first one that we come to with our questions. Especially our questions about our promise. They should be directed towards the one who's going to fulfill our promise. And I love that Samuel was upfront about his fears. What if he kills me? We even see in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus that Jesus does is he takes his fears before God and he lays them down at his feet. He doesn't try to hide them or conceal him. That's what Samuel's doing. He's bringing his fears before God and laying them at his feet. Verse 2, the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. So we have question, answer, problem, solution. It's not always quite that straightforward. And God isn't always going to answer your questions the way that you want him to. Sometimes he'll even answer your questions with better questions. But it's okay because he's trustworthy and he knows what you do and don't need to know. He's completely trustworthy and he will make sure that you know what you need to know when you need to know it. Verse 3. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. So now we have a task and instructions on how to carry it out. Verse 4 and 5. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So we see he followed through step one, check, step two, check, step three, check, and now comes step four. Anoint for me the one that I indicate. So the last step is contingent on God's indication. Verse six, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. And I think this part is so funny because it's just such a human thing to do that when God plants a seed or places a dream or sets us on a path for us to get a little excited and to just latch on to the first thing that looks good, like, yes, this is it. This is God's promise. Surely this is what God was talking about. And it's like putting together a puzzle. Sometimes you find a piece that you are just so sure fits in a certain place and you twist it, and you try to make it fit, and we all know that you could technically make the piece fit. 
you could shave some off the sides, you could cut pieces off, and you could force the piece to fit where you think it belongs. But even if you were to make it fit, the picture's now distorted. Verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So it's obvious that Eliab was handsome and tall, but even though he was attractive in worldly standards, and though he seemed like a great fit, he was rejected by God. From a worldly perspective into the human eye, something may seem great. The first thing that passes by may seem perfect. It may seem so right, yet be rejected by God. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The rules have changed. We have a new ruler that we're measuring with. And when we try to see things from a heavenly and eternal perspective, when we start looking at what God is looking at, and when we try to see through his eyes, we won't get so easily distracted. And you may be thinking, well, okay, how exactly do I do that? How do I come into alignment with God? Well, the first and best step that you can take is this. This is God-breathed, God-inspired. This is his word. It has dual authorship between Holy Spirit and the people that God chose to put their hands to paper to write it. If we want to know his voice and his word, then we need to know this. The second thing you can do is command your flesh to come into alignment with him. I pray this prayer all the time out loud. I command my flesh, my heart, my mind, my soul, and my spirit to come into alignment with God and his will. You may think, okay, well, what does that do? Well, your words have power. God gave your words power. When you speak, and especially when you are direct with your words, things in the atmosphere change around you. And a way to take this layer deeper is to spend alone time with God. If we want to know his voice and to know what he's looking at, and we want to come into alignment with him, spending undisturbed, no distractions, just time with him and you, there's no way to know his voice better. If you come into alignment with God and his will, when the world tries to offer you something different, you'll know the difference. Verses 8 through 10, Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass by Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. So now Samuel knows the difference. The Lord didn't have to butt in again and say, No, no, Samuel knew the difference this time. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. And pay attention to the fact Jesse had his sons pass by. When people tried to offer Samuel something different, he now knew the difference. The Lord has not chosen these. Verse 11, so he asked Jesse, are these all the sons that you have? And notice that the question is directed towards Jesse this time. Samuel didn't immediately start, when he didn't immediately see the fulfillment of God's promise, he didn't start questioning God's sovereignty. After seeing seven of Jesse's sons and none of them being the one, he wasn't discouraged. And he didn't start questioning God, like, God, why did you tell me it was going to be one of Jesse's sons? I've seen seven of them. None of those are it. He didn't start questioning God. What does he do? He questions Jesse. He already knows what his God told him. They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending to the sheep. Samuel didn't need a whole new lineup. He didn't need seven more to choose from. He just needed the one. Your miracle is always in what you have left. There may be some of you in here this morning that 
there's been a promise that God has made to you or you've been praying prayers for a miracle and there have been many moments that pass by that you thought were going to be the fulfillment of that prayer or promise and they weren't. And after seven tries, you're starting to feel a little discouraged. But God is not done yet. Your miracle is always in what you have left. And in all honesty, the first time I read through this passage, I thought it seemed like a very uh, Cinderella moment. Or I guess, considering which story comes first, Cinderella is a very David moment. But if you need a reminder of the story of Cinderella, you know, she goes to the ball, meets Prince Charming, she leaves the glass slipper behind, the slipper that was made for her foot. It could only fit her foot. And Prince Charming, determined to find her, takes up the slipper, and he goes and searches the entire kingdom, searching high and low, searching for Cinderella, having every maiden in the land try on the slipper, because he knows it's only going to fit her. And he gets to the last household, goes through every maiden in the house, none of them are it, and he turns, are you sure no one else lives here? And they lied about it, but then Cinderella came and it was all good, so he found her. But... What I want you to see here is that like that slipper could only fit her foot because it was made and molded to her foot, your anointing is the same way. Your anointing is specific to you. It's specific to your calling. Your anointing isn't going to fit anybody else. Your anointing isn't something that you have to justify or prove because it's specific to you. Verse 12. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Eliab may have been handsome and tall, but David was glowing. It does not say Eliab was glowing. David, on the other hand, was glowing. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Step four. The Lord will always be faithful to follow up when he says he's going to follow up. One of my favorite worship songs it's called Seasons Change by United Pursuit. And there's a line in the song called, that says, Where you've been faithful to plant the seeds, you will be faithful to always send your rain. And I love that because where God has been faithful to plant seeds, plant dreams, and seasons he's placed you in, he will be faithful to always send his rain. Verse 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Now I want to switch our focus for a minute, and I want us to look at David. When David's anointing came along, where was he? He was tending to the sheep. His job was tending to sheep. David, who would one day be king over all of Israel, had a job tending sheep. I'm going to guess that David probably never thought he would one day be a king. But I think that he probably had to have felt the weight of his calling. And it's not a burden kind of a weight, but a healthy weight. Because when it comes to God's purpose and plan for your life, there's a healthy weight that comes with it because it's important. For me, like teaching, like I still get nervous. I mean, I haven't really done a whole lot, but it's still nerve-wracking. And it's not because I have a fear of talking in front of people, but because it's something that God asked me to do. There's a weight that comes with it. And it's not a weight that he's placing on me, but it flows out of my reverence towards him. It's a holy weight. Holy means set apart. God is set apart. The things of God are set apart. So it makes sense that there's a weight that comes with the things that he's doing in you and through you because it's holy. Matthew 11, verses 29 through 30, talk about my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The first part of that verse says, take my yoke upon you. 
we're still taking something on. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's not a heavy weight, but it's still a weight. God placed great purpose on David's life, and I bet that he had to have felt that to an extent. I bet that there were dreams in David's heart and important things that he thought he was supposed to accomplish in life. And this weight, it's a feeling that comes with being a part of something bigger than yourself. Something I love about David is the fact that he was very selfless. He most definitely had his moments and he made selfish choices, but when he did, everything fell apart. But for the most part, he was very selfless. Our society, on the other hand, is very self-centered. Everything's about me, how it makes me feel, how it affects me, what is my truth. I don't even know what that means. There's no such thing as my truth when there's the truth. But everything's about me. But when your life is about you, it can't amount to anything more than you. David's life wasn't about him, so it amounted to so much more than him. And like I said, in the moments that he did get selfish, everything crumbled. His day job, though, was tending sheep. On the front end, your job may not always look like your calling, but I guarantee you that it's preparing you for your calling. Jesus' job was to die on the cross, yet his calling was to be the savior of the world. His job was to die, yet his calling was to save. Those seem conflicting, and it was to the disciples. How can he save the world if he's gone? How can he bring this kingdom that he's talked about if he's dead? His job was temporary, but his calling was eternal, and one led to the other. He died in a moment, but then rose again as our Savior, and he's been living ever since. He couldn't have fulfilled his calling if he didn't do his job. His job led to his calling, and there was purpose in both. With David on the front end, his job doesn't seem to make sense. His calling was to be king, a king of a nation, a people group, yet his job Tending sheep required him to be alone all day, every day in a field. It's hard to develop good people skills that way. He had to tend to the needs of the sheep, though, and protect them. Well, what does a king do? He tends to the needs of his people and protects them. Psalm 78, verses 70 through 71. This is talking about God. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob of Israel, his inheritance. For me, I want to do full-time ministry. Yeah, I'm working at Starbucks this summer as a barista. I even applied for an internship this summer doing ministry. Yet God shut that door to have me work at Starbucks. Instead, that seems conflicting. And I'm sure that tending sheep was not a fun job. It probably was a lot of work at some times and probably really boring at others. It wasn't this glorious, praiseworthy job. Animals are dirty and they smell bad. But David was faithful to show up with what he had. And because he was faithful to the job he was given, he was in the perfect place to be found when his anointing came along. Imagine if Jesse had said, oh, he's tending to the sheep, and then they went to look for him, and he was just gone because he just up and left, decided he was sick of it, and he was just done. You have free will. Our culture tells us that we have to fight to make our dreams come true. David could have decided that he just hated it and that he was done, and he could have walked away for something that he thought was better. But instead, he was patient. Psalm 103, verse 13 talks about the Israelites and says, Soon they forgot what he had done and did not wait for his plan to unfold. 
David was faithful to show up and wait for God's plan to unfold. Don't mistake his faithfulness for laziness. He still worked hard and he gave his all. He wasn't lazy, but he was fully present where he was placed. He didn't just show up and sulk. He didn't mentally and emotionally check out. He was fully present where he was placed. He put forth his best and gave all that he had. It would have been so much easier to show up with a bad attitude and do the job halfway, but that's not what David did. Because he was giving his best, when a bear and a lion came after his sheep, the sheep entrusted to him, he risked his life to save the sheep. Something tells me if he didn't take his job seriously, then he probably would not have pried open the jaws of a lion for the sake of a sheep. But had he not been faithful to give his all then, had he not been faithful to fight the bear and the lion, he wouldn't have been as prepared to fight Goliath. If you're faithful to show up in the small things and give your all, God will make it count later. Fighting the bear and the lion offered David absolutely nothing in return. He received no glory for that, but he was committed to the job he was given, so God was faithful to make it count later. There are so many things that God is wanting to cultivate in you now for a greater purpose later. And him cultivating these things in you is dependent on you showing up and giving it your all. There are even things that God has already placed in you that he wants to strengthen. For example, the fruit of the Spirit. I believe anyone can hear from and talk to the Holy Spirit. But when we make the choice to give our lives to Jesus and when we die to ourselves and to our sin, we become a dwelling place for Holy Spirit. He now lives in us. Verse 13 says, The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. But know this, just because he received his anointing and the Spirit of the Lord does not mean that he was done growing. His life wasn't free from all hardships and struggles. Even after he defeated Goliath and became king of Israel, he still faced challenges and trials, if not more. But because he had received the Spirit, he was able to put the fruit of the Spirit into practice. Makes sense. If we receive the Spirit, we receive the fruit of the Spirit. And if you need a reminder of what those are, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, living in the South, at one point or another, we've probably all heard someone or someone's mom say, Oh, Lord, give me patience. Like, you probably like bickering with your siblings or friends and somebody's, oh, Lord, give me patience. We probably have all said this ourselves, like at some point or another, maybe sitting in Nashville traffic, God, give me patience. I myself have said that a time or two. But I want to challenge that mindset because it's important to recognize the fact that we need Holy Spirit to give us the strength to put those things into practice But asking God to just give you patience is like asking him to just give you abs. It's summertime. Everybody wants their beach body. But asking God to just give you patience is like asking him to just give you abs. Technically speaking, you do have abs. We all have abdominal muscles. They may just not look like what you want them to because you haven't put them to work. The problem isn't that I don't have patience. It's just uncomfortable to use because I don't very often. It hurts. What happens when you use a muscle that you don't very often? It hurts. Sometimes there's even a lasting pain, a soreness. You're sore the next day. 
And that's why we don't really like to exercise patience because it doesn't feel how we want it to. It hurts. It leaves us feeling sore. Maybe it leaves your pride feeling sore. But if you're diligent to keep working that muscle, even if it hurts, what happens? Your capacity to use it grows. Patience is the same way. If you're willing to push past the initial discomfort and consistently exercise patience, your capacity to use it grows. And that applies to all of the fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And it's interesting to me that self-control comes last. The ability for you to control you. The ability for you to choose to put love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness into action. Practicing these things is not convenient. Going to the gym is not convenient. It's not convenient for anybody, but most things worth having are not convenient. The band can come back up. David lived a life fully surrendered to God. He had his fair share of mess-ups, but he didn't try to contain God to boxes. He didn't try to contain God to his convenience or his comfort or his plan. And when he did, it didn't ever work. If I want to live a life fully surrendered to God, that means he gets full access. I have to surrender my convenience, my comfort, my time, even my sleep if he wants it. And I don't really have to worry about that because he actually commands us to rest. There's this thing called the Sabbath where one day a week we're supposed to rest. If I'm faithful to follow through with his instructions, rest won't even be a big deal if he asks me to sacrifice a few hours of sleep. God cannot be contained to our boxes. And you are capable of giving him something that absolutely no one else can, you. There's so much that God wants to do through each and every one of you. But God is waiting to see if you'll show up in the small things, maybe the jobs that don't make sense, and if you'll be willing to just push past convenience. And that's true even right now in this room. He wants to move in this place today, but he's waiting to see if we'll push past our own convenience first. Maybe that looks like putting down a cup of coffee and giving him both of your hands in worship. Not checking your watch because you're concerned about getting out of here on time for lunch. We can't contain God to a time slot. He doesn't fit. But we're never stepping into our calling more than when we're worshiping the one who called us. Worship is our calling. It's the culture of heaven. David may have started out as a shepherd and ended up as a king, but he worshiped throughout all the seasons of his life. That is our ultimate calling. We'll spend the rest of eternity doing it. And God deserves our all in the midst of it. So my challenge for you today is to just not hold anything back from him. Give him absolutely everything. Sacrifice the boxes that you try to contain him to. He deserves your absolute all. Give him everything you have and everything you don't have. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you so much. I just want to invite you into this space and I just, I ask you to reveal to us any boxes that we try to contain you to. If there's anything that we've been holding back from you that we haven't surrendered to you or given you access to God, I pray that you just, you tell us what it is. You're so patient with us and so faithful to work with us. You never shame us. 
but you're always inviting us into more, more of you and more of your presence. So I pray that as we enter back into worship and even communion here in a minute, that we just don't hold anything back from you, Lord, that we just give you our absolute everything because you're worthy of it. You deserve it. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's just take a second and thank Mackenzie for sharing with us this morning. You know, sometimes, yeah, sometimes God puts us at Starbucks for a reason. We don't know what that is right now, but I believe that he's got you right where he wants you. And in the same way, there are, wherever's going on in our lives, God has got you there for a reason to encounter a person, to work on one of your fruits of the Spirit. To uh, there, There's several reasons, but just know God has you right where he wants you and that you're not too far from him. And that reminder is what we do every Sunday here in something called communion, um, historically called the Eucharist or, or Lord's Supper, all the different names, uh, is this moment. And if you're uncomfortable with this or don't know what this is, it's simply this. Uh, we have tables set out, a couple here and a couple in the back, and there's bread, which reminds us of the body of Christ. And then there's a cup, and in that cup is a little bit of grape juice, and it reminds us of the blood of Jesus, that he gave his life for us, and that we, in return, give our lives back to him. And then the bread, it, just a little piece of bread, reminds us that his body was on that cross, that he physically gave his life to make us new, to change us from the inside out, but that we are now called the body of Christ, that this community is something that God ordained, that we are the church and that we have a purpose in this world and that we can fulfill that purpose each and every day, not just in a room like this, but as we go to our, our schools, as we go to work, as we go to uh, our coffee shops and all the places that we go to hang out or whatever, we can be the hands and the feet of Jesus in every one of those places. And so we're going to pray and that you are welcome to come to the tables and share in communion, but we ask that you come as friends and as family. And for those of you that want to, you can sit right where you're at and just pray, and that's, that's fine too. Uh, we're just going to have a time of, of worship, of response. We actually do have a red respond banner back there, and if there's something that's on your heart that you want to pray about, uh, go back there, and there'll be some people who will pray with you um, and will uh, love on you as you share together. Uh, I've really enjoyed this morning and, and hearing just a little bit of Samuel and David and what it means to be called and what it means in God's timing and, and all of that, because I know we all wrestle with that. So let's pray and let's respond in worship, in communion, in prayer, and an outpouring of love to Jesus. God, who he are so grateful for this time. We know you are present. We know you are here in this place. 
And we still, even knowing that you are here, we still have questions about where we're at in life and what you're doing and what is going on behind the scenes. And we know that whatever it is, you are faithful in it. We have seen you do it in the past and we know you're going to do it again. But God, we know these things because we saw, we've read, we've experienced your son. We've experienced the cleansing of our sin forgiveness because of your son on the cross and so God as we take the cup as we take the bread to our lips remind us that we're your sons and we're your daughters and that we're loved by you help us never forget the power of the cross God may we we wrestle through your timing and our calling and in where we're at and what you're doing behind the scenes that we know to trust you in that even though we can't see what's happening today may we trust you may we trust you may we trust you bless this time of communion of sharing together in your son's name we pray